announce that afterwards. So for those that are watching at home, you're not able to see because the mics are over there to uh, my right. But uh, Renee Amador, actually, no, he's got a wireless. I got a wireless. So, see. so Renee's going to kind of fill us in a little bit on what we're going to do tonight. All right, so good evening. So uh, on Wednesday nights, uh, my wife, Shannon, and myself, we do the middle school class here on Wednesday nights. And we've been doing something different uh, to begin the school year, kind of along the line of um, new curriculum. Uh, we've been going uh, last year, over the past year, beginning of 2020, uh, we hit hard the Bible, uh, Genesis through Revelation, uh, beginning to the end, and just like a summary of the Bible, 10,000-foot uh, view. Uh, here this past month, we've been going through what we call bold Bible truths, and the bold Bible truth we discussed a couple weeks ago was that God is in charge. God is in charge. And we talked about just how, how does he communicate to us? He communicates us to, through his word, the Bible. And the Bible is big. And we, some, of our, some of the questions that we have about life are clearly answered in the Bible. But sometimes we can't find the answer to our exact particular question. And God, we talked about how God doesn't really work like Google, like a search engine, or like YouTube typing up something, how do I do this? Or where do I go, right, like uh, for a GPS navigation? It doesn't work exactly that way. Uh, so we talked about then, who do we go to uh, when we have difficult questions? Uh, we talked about going to our parents. We talked about going to our Wednesday or Sunday school teachers. And we talked about going to our pastor. Uh, so when we talked about those things, we made a list of people we could go to. Some of those people we can go to, you're sitting right here in the sanctuary, some of the names that were mentioned. And then for the list of questions, we had a lot of questions that came up uh, from the kids. And uh, my wife and I discussed it. We thought we would try and tackle it um, uh, through our Wednesday, uh, Wednesday classes. But we had a lot of questions. And then we thought it would be nice to, uh, to ask some of the people that were generated from the list, uh, from the body here, the church body, to come to our class and answer them as well. Um, so we wanted to ask... Pastor James here first uh, up, and we discussed it uh, about a week and a half ago, and um, James had a great idea about doing it in this form right now uh, during a Wednesday service, uh, giving the kids an opportunity to ask their questions directly, and um, that's what we're doing tonight. So uh, we're thankful for the opportunity. Uh, I don't know if they're excited, but uh, they do have these some difficult questions, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. How it goes tonight. Thank you, James. Yeah, we finished up uh, Jude last week, and so we kind of had an off week, if you will, in the sense of before starting something new. And I was supposed to come out to church about 10 minutes early tonight to kind of answer some questions. And I thought, let's just do this right here. So the kids are going to come up. Tweets is going to kind of uh, moderate this a little bit. And they kind of gave me some ideas of what some of the questions could be. So I do have some notes taken for some of this. And this is going to be interesting to see. I just want to say a couple things before we get going. Please note this is not stump the pastor. Uh, the pastor can be stumped very, very easily. This is not the case of that. This is to try to do it. And part of the reason why I want to do this publicly is to also have these kids learn public speaking, have them to learn a little bit of give and take with questions so when they ask their question, I can come back and ask them some follow-up questions. Because one of the things I've learned in any time people have Bible questions, a lot of times I answer the question with a question. And you may say, well, that's getting out of it. No, nope, that's the style that Jesus did. Go back and read in the Gospels. How many times did Christ ask a question? 
And those questions helped them probe a little farther into what's going on. Like one of the questions they asked here was just really great, and I don't know if that's one we're going to start out with, but it deserves some follow-up to kind of clarify some stuff. So I think we're ready as well. We'll be. So I don't know who's going first. Make sure you say your name into the mic because the people at home don't know who's talking. Uh, hi, my name is Ken Irvin. I'm sorry, what's your name? Hi, my name is Ken Irvin. Ken and Irvin. You must have great parents. Uh, and my question is, is hell down and heaven up? Is hell down and heaven up? That's an interesting question. You've never asked me that before. Kenan told me very clearly that uh, he's asking every question he's ever needed to ask me at home. So in our living room, you never asked that before. Is hell down and heaven up? Why would you think hell is down and heaven's up? Make sure you're talking to the mic there, buddy. Uh, because that's what people think. That's what people think. That is a good way to look at it. Um, let's just answer this like this way. The Bible talks about there's three heavens. Uh, the one heaven is the heaven that we can see our sky. The second heaven is what we would look into like outer space. And the Bible talks about the third heaven. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians. The third heaven would be the abode of God. So is that up? That's a relative term. So, but that's where God lives. We generally think of that being up, I guess. Hell People like to think of it's like in the center of the earth. The problem with hell being in the center of the earth is this. If you read in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So therefore, hell can't be in the center of our earth because if hell was in the center of the earth, this earth is going to be destroyed and we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth. So the answer is simply, is it up and down? No, it's not that simple of an answer, but the answer would be no. I will say this, though, when you talk about hell, it's very interesting in the book of Revelation. It talks about a bottomless pit. And if you think about it, there's only one place where there's a bottomless pit, and that's the center of the earth. Because if you're in the center of the earth, it's bottomless. Every way is up. Just kind of an interesting little thought. And please also note in the book of Revelation, they talk about the bottomless pit being open, and it looks like it's something in this world here that it is open and things come out of. There is a reference in the book of Peter where they call a place called Tartarus, which is a place of judgment where they're being held. That may be something that's actually physically on this earth. But the idea of the eternal boat of God up and the eternal damnation of people being down below, no, that's not something that we necessarily see in the Bible. Did you just come up with that? Did you ask her? You've been raised well. And tweets, that was the one that was on the sheet. Yeah. That's another thing. I was working on these questions. And one of my boys came in the room and said, what are you working on? And I told him, they said, Dad, that's cheating. You have the questions beforehand. It's not trying to cheat. Mm -hmm. okay. Hi, my name is Lucia Alvarado, and I have three questions. My first question is, why is there so many Bible translations? Why is there so many Bible translations? Yeah. I took some notes on that because I thought that's going to be an interesting one that we're going to uh, get to here. Why is there so many Bible translations? Let me find that one real quick. Yeah. All right. I wrote down a couple quick things about that. And you may think I'm making a joke out of some of this, and I'm not making a joke out of it. But why are there so many Bible translations? It, it depends on who you ask. Uh, answer number one would be money. Uh, people make money off Bible translations. And I know people don't like to think that way, but that's the reality of it. Sometimes you put out a new translation, people are going to go out and buy it. I love Bibles. I love Bibles. And I am a sucker for anything when it comes to a Bible. If I go into a Christian bookstore and find online and there's a new translation, I'm already looking it up to see what's different about it, so there's one. Number two, an answer that some people may not really like, uh, the enemy may get involved. 
there are some quote-unquote new translations coming out that I would stay away from heavily. So there are sometimes the enemy gets involved. Now let's get down to the real reasons here of maybe why there's different translations. Here's the, is the real answer, and this gets a little difficult, so just kind of follow along with me. There are some translations that are called word-for-word, or like a literal equivalent. And if you've ever read one of those, you know what I'm talking about. That would fall under the idea of like a King James Version, or maybe an NASB, a New American Standard Bible. Those, to most people, come across as a little bit more difficult to read. There's something called Young's Literal Translation, and it reads very, very choppy. So that's one translation where they literally just translate it word for word. There's another type of translation that's called a thought for thought. And this is kind of what's called a dynamic equivalence. Maybe you read something like the NLT. And if you've never read the NLT before, it reads very smoothly. If you read King James and then go to NLT, you're going to say, how in the world is this the same? One is reading a thought for thought on how you would express it. One is a literal translation. If anybody here ever speaks two languages, you know what I'm talking about. My very little Spanish that I know, I know that sometimes when you're translating things over, you don't do the literal word-for-word translation. You translate the thought for thought. Because if you go literally word-for-word, it can come across very choppy. Now, why are there all these other different translations? And I'm not going to go into detail on this. I'm just going to throw it out there because there's a lot of different Greek texts that people get from So what happens is if you have something that's maybe a newer translation, an NLT or NIV, you kind of have a translation that came out of something called the NU text or the critical text. But if you have something that maybe comes out of an older translation, the King James Version, there's something called like the Textus Receptus. And these are just different collections of Greek manuscripts that they've collected over the years. And what has happened is this, is all these Greek manuscripts translate just a little different. Now, let me just share a little bit about about this before we go on, because I think this is something that's really, really important. Really important. And just bear with me. And for some of you that's already getting bored, just hold on with this. Because this is something that's very, very important here. Okay. I I got these numbers because I make sure I got it right. There's over 5,600 ancient Greek manuscripts in existence today. 5,600. Okay? Now, if you add in all the other languages, Latin, Aramaic, etc., That's another 19,000. That means there's over 24,000 different manuscripts of the Bible out there. So if you've ever sat here and wondered, how do we know that this is true? We have so much manuscript evidence for this. I want to make sure that's clear. And when you compare them to each other, they're about 99.5% the same. Now you may stop and say, well, it sure doesn't seem that way. You're only looking at a couple verses out of thousands of verses in the Bible. Thousands of chapters, 66 books. They are so very similar. But what happens is there's these different ways of translating and I just go back to that simple thing. Some of it is a word for word, a literal and they come out of different texts and some of it is more of that dynamic thought for thought that comes out of a different text. So it kind of goes in the way you like to read versus how other people want to read. Now, did you ask that question or is that a question they gave you to ask? No. Yeah, yeah, I guess. That's okay. What did you think of the answer? Good. Yeah, that was good. You have to say good. You, you can go ahead and take a seat if you want. But let me just say this, talking about translations. You want to get a translation, not a paraphrase. That's my my opinion, opinion. And you want to get a good translation. Paraphrase Bibles are nice to an extent if you're just kind of reading through, if you need to get a little bit of an understanding. But I'm telling you, if you're going to get any type of Bible study, you want to get a good translation. There's good translations out there. I have a Bible at home that actually has four different translations in it. So as I'm reading through it, I can look at the ESV, the NLT, the New King James, and I can start comparing them. When I'm preparing a message, I'll look at at least six different translations just to kind of see there a little bit. 
So that's kind of why there's so many different translations because it comes from the different Greek texts that have been collected and they've gone different routes with it. Some of it is thought for thought. Some of it is also um, word for word there as well. And if anybody wants to ask follow-up questions, they're allowed to too, right, tweets? I mean, like from the crowd and stuff? You're kind of the head of this. My name is Mia Amador, and my question is, what would have happened if Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life instead of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Yep. And then there's a, is there, you're doing the follow-up with that one, too? What would have happened if they ate from the tree of life with the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I thought that was a really good question. If you did not know this, if you got your Bibles, let's go there real quick. Let's go to Genesis. Let's talk about this. This was a really good question. A lot of people don't realize this, but there was two trees mentioned here in creation. All right, let's go to Genesis 2. Okay, the one we know about the most, there's this idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let me get my verses around here, please. So take a look right there, and you guys know what happens with this. Uh, let's start in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And we've talked about that idea of what that tree there represents. But there's another tree in there called the tree of life that's mentioned as well, too. And that's back in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the question is, like I said, what Mia is asking here is this. Hypothetically, what would have happened if they would have ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they did, and brought sin into the world, and then they would have went and ate of the tree of life? Correct? Make sure we're following that. Okay, what we can piece together with the tree of life is this. The tree of life carries that idea of eternal life, and it's not only mentioned in Genesis, it's also mentioned multiple times in the book of Revelation. There's a promise given to us in the book of Revelation as well. It says right here, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then in Revelation 22, in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life is in heaven. And the tree of life is that idea of eternal life that we have. So if they would have ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, now remember this is all hypothetical, so we've got to be careful about this, because if the Bible wanted to make it clear, it would have. It looks like they would have brought sin into their bodies, which would have caused decay and death into them, but yet they also would have had the tree of life, which would have given them eternal life to an extent, so they would have lived forever in a perishing body, which is awful. We have to remember that sometimes death is an amazing victory and death is the greatest healing that God ever gives us. It's a release from pain. So therefore, if they would have ate of the tree of life, excuse me, tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have brought sin into their body, they would have gone to the tree of life, they would have lived on forever in that state of decay. That's why in Genesis 3, jump ahead a little bit there, verse 22, 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God in his mercy guards the tree of life, tells man you can't go near it because if you go eat of this tree... And this idea of eternal life, then you will then live forever in this decaying body that would be completely, utterly miserable. If you remember correctly in the book of Revelation, one of the punishments in Revelation is that men want to die and they can't. Sometimes death is a release. So to answer your question, they hypothetically would have lived on in this decaying state where they would not have had the relief from death. Does that make sense? Okay. Does that make sense to everybody else too? And if Adam and Eve eat from the tree of life instead of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, they may have eaten from the tree of life. They were allowed to eat from the tree of life. God said you can eat from any tree if you want, just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life is something they would have been allowed to partake of. And that's something that you see up in heaven for eternity as well. It seems to be this picture of eternal life that we can have of eating and partaking of that carries on this idea of eternal life. So they would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life. Just not of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, hello, my name is Maggie Woods, and uh, my question is, if God knew that Satan would tempt Adam and Eve to create sin, why did he even create him? Why did he create Satan? Once again, this is a question not on the list. Thank you very much. Um, why did he create Satan? Bible says that everything God created was good. Everything was created for God's glory. So let's stick with those two basic premises right there. So if he's created for good, created for God's glory, that means he serves a purpose. Here's the deal with creating Satan. We have to remember a couple things about the Bible. The Bible is God's book to man to explain to us our purpose on this life to prepare us for eternity. So let's get that clear. So when you read through the Bible, sometimes it leads to other questions. If our final destination is heaven, why isn't God spending more time in the Bible talking about heaven? Why doesn't God explain why he created Satan knowing that he was going to do all this stuff? Because God's response, I think, would be that doesn't deal with you right now. Parents, how many times have we told our children, it doesn't matter? God is saying right now that detail doesn't matter, but we can kind of speculate a couple different things here. For the idea of love to exist, you have to have a choice. You have to. If Dawn and I were forced to get married, could we look at each other and say, I chose you, I love you, I want to be with you? No, I have to be with you. Rabbi Zacharias does a great job explaining creation real quick, and he says this. God could have done four things with creation. First thing he could have done was done nothing. It's just the Trinity for all of existence. Okay? Second thing he could have done was made a world where there's just no good, no evil. Just nothing. It's just an immoral world. He could have done a world where people only choose good. Okay? But instead, he chose a world where people have a choice. This is the only way in which love can be possible because we actually have a choice. A choice. I hate milk. I hate milk. And I am a 43-year-old man and I will never drink a glass of white milk again because I do not have to. The only way I would drink a glass of milk if you add so much chocolate in it 
that it doesn't even taste like white milk anymore, and it's soupy, solid, like you're almost eating a slushy of chocolate. That's how much I dislike milk. Why do I bring this up? If I am dying, and I'm dying of thirst, and I show up, and somebody says, you're dying of thirst. I say, I know I'm dying of thirst. Give me something to drink. Only thing I have is milk, white milk. What am I going to choose? White milk. So as I'm drinking this white milk, someone will say, oh, you must love milk. No, I hate milk. Then why are you drinking it? That's the only choice I have. I have no other choice. The only way to have a choice, this is the only way to show what I love, is to have a choice. Therefore, Satan's existence, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, gave mankind a choice to therefore show that we will choose to be obedient and choose to love God. There was a reason that came out of it. Satan is being used by God. The Bible says he will even make his enemies his footstool. So when we look at Satan as almost this rebellious, which he was, I don't want to ignore that, this rebellious entity that God said, oh man, what happened? He got away from me. No, he's being used. And so therefore the existence of Satan is used by God in this world to give us a choice. And you see that happen played out during the millennial reign. Christ comes back and rules for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, Christ uh, allows Satan to be released from the pit. And Satan goes and leads a rebellion on this earth. Why? Because those people living in the millennial reign never had a choice. And then they get to choose at that point. So why was Satan here? Satan is here right now to be used by God to give people a choice to choose good or evil, Christ or no Christ, and he's being used that way for God's glory and God's purpose. So that's all I would say to that. My name's Olivia. Um, how can God see all of us at once? How can God see all of us at once? Remember, He is almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, outside of time. By definition of God, He is able to see everything all at once. If He was a God that could not see everything all at once, then He's hardly a God. So part of being God is almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, outside of time. That's how he can hear our prayers all at once. That's why he can see all at once. And do we really want to believe and serve a God who can't hear us all at once and keep track of everything? We have seven children and sometimes we lose one. Don't report us. But sometimes we're like, hey, where'd so-and-so go? And we're yelling through the house looking for them. Can you imagine serving a God that forgot about you? So you show up knocking on the door of heaven for all of eternity. He's like, I completely forgot about you. Yeah, yeah, sure, come in. I still got a place made for you. No, that's the definition of God, that he is almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, outside of time, that he's able to keep track of everything because that's the definition of God himself. My name is Addie Ice, and how does God feel about other religions? How does God feel about other religions? Hey, Eddie, can I ask a follow-up on that? So can you give an example of other religions? Oh, way to call out another religion, Tweets. That's a great job. So, yeah, this, might, this wasn't Addie's question. Oh, this wasn't? Okay. All right, well, I'll... How does he feel about other religions? And I think one of the follow-up questions was that, does he love them? Or something along that type of line. Was that idea of, does God love people from a different religion? 
The, the simple answer to that is, yeah, God loves them. I mean, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He was only begotten Son. Whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, 1 John 4.8, God is love. He shows his love to the entire world. Uh, Matthew 5, he gives rain to the entire world. Not only believers, but the whole world gets rain. The whole world gets sun, according to Matthew 5. Acts 17, the whole world has life and breath. We just sang that last worship song. It's his breath in our lungs. So, he loves everybody. Now, here's the deal. Does he love them like he loves us? This is where it gets a little different. I am the bride of Christ. I am his friend. I am his child. I am his brother. And that shows a closeness. That closeness shows a different relationship that I have with him than what a typical non-believer would have. Jesus said this in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus says there is a love there. I mean, bad analogy. And we've got to be careful of taking an, an idea of God and making a human analogy out of it, because it can fall apart really quickly. If you've ever tried to explain the Trinity, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you do water, ice, and steam, or apple. It falls apart because there's not a perfect analogy. The reality is this. I love every one of your children that come out here to church. I love them. I don't love them like I love my kids. I love my wife in a special way. I love my parents differently than I love other parents. I love my sisters differently. That's just the closeness of the relationship. So with that being said, does God love other, the other people? Of course he loves them because he is love. But we also have a different type of relationship with them as a friend, child, brother, spouse. There shows a closeness there with that. And there is a different type of love that comes along with that. And that's what John 14 is saying there. Is that by loving the Father and loving Christ, there's a love they have for us that is different. But he does love them. He does love them. But don't forget, just because he loves them doesn't mean that he doesn't hold them accountable. Love also is accountability, part of God's character. So often people talk about the character trait of love for God, and I think it's wonderful. But God is also fair. God is also just. God also judges. That's part of God's character traits as well, too. My name is, my name is Eliana Dishon. Why did we quit doing the good things that the people used to do in the Bible? Okay, yeah, stay up here for a second, Eliana, because this was a good question. And I want to ask, what, was this a question you asked? No. Oh, okay. Well, then pretend you did. Okay. What were some of the good things that they were doing that we quit doing, do you think? And if you want to phone a friend, Mr. Amador may be able to help you on this one again. What were some of the good things? Because I, I, that was an interesting question. I didn't write anything down for that because I didn't know exactly what the good things that they were doing that we, that we quit doing. So these are the type of questions, I, I joked when we wrote down this long list, I joked to the class that these are the type of questions my kids asked me right before I want to hit the, the light switch in their bedroom, right? Dad, I got a question. Yeah. This, this would be one of the examples of the question. How about God said it was good to offer sacrifices? Oh, okay. Let's go there we go. Sacrifices. sacrifices. Yeah, so we, we sacrifice one, and that's a good one. Thank you, Eliana. You can sit down. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. You know, I think the simplest answer for the sacrifice thing is you're right. For thousands of years, the sacrificial system was set up, 
And if you think back also, if you studied out in the millennial reign, if you study out Ezekiel, it sure looks like they're going to start offering sacrifices again during the thousand-year reign of Christ. That really bothers some people. Because why do we have to go back and start killing animals again during the millennial reign? The reason we took that thing of sacrifices that we consider good and stopped is because Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 say Christ became the ultimate sacrifice for us. So since Christ became the ultimate sacrifice for us, no other sacrifices need to be offered. He fulfilled the law according to Matthew 5. So therefore, since he fulfilled those religious requirements for us, they no longer need to be done for us. So that's an example of something that we've considered good that is no longer doing. I would say this, and I'm not trying to pick on any wording here a little bit. I don't know if I would call the sacrificial system good. The sacrificial system was a necessity to an extent. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, if you remember correctly, Adam and Eve sinned. And then what's the first thing they did? They went and hid, naked. Then they made their own outfits out of leaves. God says that's not going to work. He made them tunics of skin, which showed what? Right from there, animals had to die to cover up their sin. Literally, animals died to literally cover them up. So the sacrificial system was a good system in that sense of that it fulfilled God's purpose of pointing out our sin. And it was a good system in the sense of covering our sin until Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, could come and take away the sacrificial system. And that's in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. And please remember, when you write, study out the writings of Paul, Paul calls the law good. It served its purpose. It was a good thing. But millennial reign looks like animal sacrifices are coming back as a reminder of what Christ did on the cross. My name is Linnea Meyer, and how does God keep track of everything and everyone? Right. And that kind of goes back to the one we talked about a little bit earlier, that the idea of the almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, outside of time, God that is able to do that, keep track of everything, keep track of all these prayers, keep track of all these people. You know, it just comes back to that idea. I think we really have a tendency to sometimes put God in a box. I really, a great meditation of your devotion is just really focusing on those character traits of God. Almighty, all-powerful, ever-present, outside of time, that's the God that's able to keep track of everything like that. How do we know God listens to our prayers? That is a good question. How do we know God listens to our prayers? All right, first one. And, and you're going to think this sounds like it's a cop-out, but we'll go back to the character of God. We know God listens to our prayers because God says he listens to our prayers. So since God tells me he listens to my prayers, we know that he does. And we know that the Bible says that God does not lie. Let me just repeat a couple quick verses here for you. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1, 2. God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18. Two immutable, unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie. So God says he does not lie. The Bible says God does not lie. So therefore, when he says that he answers our prayers, that means he does because he's not lying. And the second answer I would say to that is we see answers to prayers. We pray about things and we see answers to them. Some of us can give testimonies here of absolutely amazing answers that there is no answer but God. I'm not a fan of coincidence. I'm not a fan of happenstance. I don't believe in that in any way whatsoever. I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God. And God says, James, I listen to your prayers. That's promised. The Bible says they're like incense going up into heaven. In Revelation, they're collected. So therefore, those prayers do not fall on deaf ears, which goes back to our other point. The ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, outside-of-time God, 
hears these prayers. He says, I hear them. I do not lie. And therefore, I also see answers. So that's how I would know that God answers prayer. Yeah. Yeah, how do we know when to stop praying? That is a very good question as well, too. I heard somebody teach one time that you stop praying after three times. Because they said Jesus prayed three times in the garden, and Paul prayed three times to have the thorn in the flesh taken away. I don't go that far. I obviously pray more than three times. How do we know when to stop praying? Okay, so I would ask this if I was, and Shannon, I'll pretend that you are the child. So, Shannon, how do you know when your parents want you to do something? They told you. How do you know when your parents are saying no? They say no. John 10 is a long chapter where God says, my sheep hear my voice. Part of having a relationship with the Lord is learning to understand when he is saying no and yes to things. Now, I understand that sometimes that gets a little, a little hard. But their answer is when you start understanding. I know my wife. We've been married 24 years. I know when she's upset and when she's happy. I said something today that crossed the line. She never said a word. I'm still in trouble for it, but I saw it. I know she's upset about it. My sheep hear my voice. Now, that's a hard one to put into practice. So let's go a couple steps further. How do we know when the answer is no? First off, if your request is unbiblical. Now, you may say, well, that's silly. I know people that pray for unbiblical things all the time. It makes no sense to me. Of course, the answer to that is no. It's just going to be no. How else do we know the answer is going to be no? James 4, 3 says, if you're asking for selfish reasons, for selfish motives, the answer is no. So God is saying, will you please take a look at your prayer request and look at the motives behind it? Are you so selfish and prideful that you want that job, that promotion, so you're saying, Lord, make everybody else falter and stumble, and I'm the only one that gets it because I'm the most important person in the world. He's probably going to say no to that. A lot of times when I have people come up to me and they're frustrated that God is always saying no to their prayers is because when you ask them what they're praying about, they're really treating God, and it goes back to the example we use out here a lot. They treat God like a butler, they treat God like a genie, or they treat God like Santa Claus. So I'm treating you like a butler, God. I'm telling you what to do, do it. He's not a butler. He'll say no. I'm treating you like Santa Claus. Here's what I want, and I've been really good. I deserve this. Your prayers aren't answered based on how you act. And number three, I'm treating you like a genie. Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. A lot of times when people come up to me and say, oh, I prayed really hard for something, it's like they really just rubbed the magic lamp for a really long time. They weren't seeking God's will. They're not seeking God's glory. They really want it. May I encourage you, though, to do this. Maybe you need to, if there's something you've been praying about for a long time and you're not getting the answer you are looking for or thinking you should be getting, may I encourage you to move your prayers into praise? And let me explain what that is. I heard a really neat teaching on this in one time. Let's say you are praying for um, a, a marriage, your marriage to be healed. So every day you get up and through tears, Lord, let, let my husband get saved. Lord, let my husband become a man of God or let my wife, whatever. So every day you just keep repeating that again and again in tears and emotion. Maybe you need to move your prayer to praise. Lord, I thank you in faith for how you're going to move in my marriage. Lord, I want to thank you right now for what you're going to do in the unseen. Or maybe you've got a friend that's not saved. Lord, I thank you that you're going to bring other people into my friend's life to represent Jesus Christ to them. Because God, you're almighty and all-powerful. And so I've already, you've already told God you want him saved. You've already told the Lord you want this taken care of. And so now you're moving into, Lord, you're just going to move in mighty ways. I had a situation a couple weeks ago that was making me so stressed out. It was just physically affecting and I caught myself and I had to stop and say, you know what, I'm switching over. I've already prayed over it. I've already given it to the Lord. And I've just moved it over to the Lord. I just don't know how you're going to move in this, but I thank you for it. 
So, Lord, I just already want to start praising you right now because whatever way it is, you're good and do good. So that was a situation for me where I didn't have the answer that I wanted or I was looking for, and I just moved the prayer into praise and just stopped and saying, Lord, I trust you in this. You are good and do good, and I pray the scriptures. So how do we know when to stop praying? Sheep hear his voice. We learn to stop and say, listen, maybe this is not God's will because I'm using this for selfish reasons. I'm using this for unbiblical reasons. There's a prideful reason right here. And I also then maybe need to step back from the prayer part of it and move to the praise part and say, Lord, I've already given this to you. I trust you're going to move in ways that I can't see. And so sometimes we just have to learn to step back and realize the Lord knows about it. Anything else? Um, my name is Mia Amador. One more question. Do angels live forever like God? Do angels live forever like God? Um, the simple answer to that is yes, because we live forever. People have a tendency to think about that. Now, when I say live forever, I'm not talking from the before time. Angels are created beings, so let's remember that. Before the earth was, before time existed, angels were created. We know that from, from studying it out. Job 38 tells us that. But do we live forever? You and I are going to live forever. We're either going to live forever in heaven or live forever in hell. This, this idea we talk about like uh, eternal life and eternal death, sometimes a little bit of a misnomer. If you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're still going to live forever. But your life of living forever is living forever in what is considered death. Because you're living forever in a hell. Hell, so yes, angels will live forever to an extent because we will see angels in eternity. We see that from the book of Revelation. And we also know the fallen angels will suffer for eternity because we see that as well in the book of Revelation. So yes, those angels will live forever, be it in heaven, God's abode, where we're going to be at, or suffering in hell for rebelling and rejecting God. So yes, those angels will live forever. But they have not been around forever like God. Remember, at a time, and I even hate using that word time, it was just God. God is outside of time. Everything we do is based on time. I'm looking at the clock. We're five minutes till eight. We need to finish up. Everything is time. God is outside of time. But there was a time where there were no angels. It was just God. And those angels then were created before the foundation of the world was laid. And yes, they will live on forever like God. Can we can do one more. Yeah. Now make it a good one. I'm just kidding. Okay. My name is Eliana Dishon. How did God decide who to be my parents? How did God decide who would be your parents? James, so this was, I remember Eliana she, did ask this question. So You really did ask this? You know, she's sitting right out so there. I, I did answer. My answer was, why did God give me these kids? Yeah, why did God give me <laughs> Why did God give you your parents? Um, a couple different reasons, just throwing it out there in no particular order. We need to learn authority. Uh, our whole life is, is, is based off authority. If you go even look in marriage, this idea, you know, submission is a dirty word, an ugly word in a lot of situations. And if you really study out the biblical concept of submission, it's not. Jesus submitted unto God the Father. He submitted under God's authority. I submit to God's authority. The head of every woman is man, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. So there, it teaches us authority. From a young age, it teaches us respect. It teaches us to listen because that's something, a character trait that's going to carry you through the rest of your life. You're going to go get your first job, and guess what? You're going to listen to the boss. You're going to get into school and college. You're going to listen to the professor. 
You can't get through this life without understanding the concept of authority. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is it teaches you ministry. Some of you kids have been blessed with absolutely amazing parents. Some of you kids have been blessed with awful parents. And I use the word blessed because God chose to put these together. And it teaches ministry. It teaches from a very young age. If you do not have the good set of parents, it teaches you from a very young age. There's got one thing I can trust in this world, and that thing is the Lord. I sometimes see some very unhealthy relationships between parents and children. And what do I mean by that? Kids go off to get married, and they forget one of the first commands given in Genesis is a man must leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And I could tell you story after story of marriage counseling done over 20 years where the greatest thing that marriage could have done is, yeah, break away from mom and dad here a little bit. And parents, you may not want to hear that, but sometimes just... I, I give my mom and dad credit. Dawn and I got married at 19. We were very, very young. And I remember distinctly before we had our washer and dryer hooked up at our apartment in McClure, we had to go over to mom and dad's house to do laundry. So we went over to mom and dad's house, put the laundry in the washer, chit-chat for a little bit, put the laundry in the dryer, chit-chat for a little bit. Got done, and we were just standing there talking. And I remember my dad came up to me, and he may not remember this. He goes, well, it's time for you to go home now. Just, and I looked at that, and I thought, and now I understand. It's, it's time. <laughs> your, your mom and I have waited 25 years for this season. But no, there's also this understanding of, and my parents have always done a very, very good job of being available and being helpful, but they have never, ever, and I mean ever, pushed anything on us in any way whatsoever. And so I believe there's also that ministry aspect of learning and training and teaching if they're not good. And also I would say the flip side of that is some parents are just an amazing blessing. Proverbs 31 says your children to rise up and call you blessed. So that's amen to that. And you may go back to the middle one and say, well, okay, James, that seems very unfair that God has sometimes allowed children to be with moms and dads that aren't the best moms and dads, and those little children have suffered for things they haven't done. Let me tell you this. Dawn and I have been doing uh, foster care for five years. We've had a lot of kids uh, come through our house. And we've had a lot of kids come through our house that have been through very, very awful, horrible things. So I see that aspect. And I'm not going to lie to you. There's times where I stop and I say, okay, Lord, what's going on here? Dawn and I have always made a rule for any foster child we've ever had is we never root against mom and dad. We root for mom and dad to get saved. We want them to come to know Christ. That's the most important thing. But even in the midst of that ugliness, a blessing comes out of it because some of the foster children we've had over the years have come out of tough situations. But my goodness, they have created such a blessing in our lives. There's this thing that we have to understand. It's called a ripple effect. And we don't fully grasp it and understand it. Romans 11 says this. God's ways are past understanding, past finding out. So when we look at something that's absolutely horrible and tragic, we may stop and say, Lord, why? God says, you don't understand the ripple effect that's going to come out of that. You know, one of the questions that was asked that we didn't get to is, why does God let innocent little kids die? And when I was taking notes on that, the first thing I wanted to say was, who's innocent? Now, I know we don't like to hear that theologically, but from Romans 3, there's no one who does good, no, not one. We're born into sin. We're born into a cursed, fallen world. This whole creation is cursed. Adam brought sin into everything. There is no innocence in this world in any way whatsoever. Sin affects us all. But that sin is used for a deeper purpose that sometimes we do not grasp on this planet. I'll be the first to say that. I've said many times before as a pastor, I can answer who, I can answer what, I can answer where, I can answer when, I cannot answer why. So when something happens to an innocent little child, why? 
I can give some theological verses on it, but the reality is this. Sometimes there's a ripple effect that happens, and so therefore we stop and say, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but you can. So, you know, back to what Eliana says, she obviously comes from a very, very good godly home. Sarah and Mike are, are wonderful parents, so we're not talking about them at all. So she is blessed. So why did she get those parents? Because you're blessed. It teaches us authority. For you that are sitting out here now saying, okay, James, I was the flip side, and I did not get the good set of parents. I'm willing to bet the Lord can and has used that in your life in deeper ways than what you could ever imagine. And sometimes those difficulties, sometimes those scars, they hurt at the time and they hurt horribly, but as time goes on, you stop and you say, Lord, I see a deeper purpose in this right now. And Lord, I wouldn't want to change it. And if you've ever heard a testimony from somebody who's gone through horribleness and they say something about what would you do differently and they sometimes stop and say, nothing. I had a very good pastor friend who's gone on to be with the Lord um, was on dialysis for many years, had a lot of health issues. And people used to come up and want to pray for him to be healed. And he asked people to stop praying for his healing. He says, God is accomplishing more through this than what could ever have been imagined if I would have been healed. The deeper purpose came out of that difficultiness. And so, you know, and you may sit here and say, this is the problem I have with God and we're out of time. Because that's a question that pops up a lot is, how can I believe in a God that lets bad things happen to good people? But the reality is this, back to the question of the parents, teaches us authority, it can be a ministry, and it also is a wonderful blessing. I think we've got to be done. James, we, uh, thank you very much for your class. I was very appreciative of this, so thank you. Oh, no problem. I just wanted to do something a little different and um, hopefully bless everybody here, a little bit change the place. So we will start something new uh, next Wednesday, a uh, new book of the Bible. I don't think we've got anything new in way of announcements. Um, said our daily breads are back there. The prayer sheets are back there that we mentioned on Sunday for those that want to grab that. And, hey, we'll be starting a new book next Wednesday if you guys want to come on out and be blessed by that as well. Hey, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the time to just get together and talk about your word. We don't have all the answers, Lord, but hopefully we can point back to the scriptures that do. You are good and do good. We trust you. We love you. We praise you. And just really right now, heavy on the heart, what, what, a, what a tough point to end on, the, the ministry of difficultness. But, Lord, I just think of all those verses, and I pray them in faith. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Lord, I just think of all those other verses that how blessed is in the man when we go through trials and tribulations, that you'll give us wisdom and guidance. Peter, where he says that you refine us. Lord, it's hard in the refining process. It's hard when the heat gets turned up, but we trust you. You're a good God, Lord, and we love you in your name. Amen. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless, and we'll catch you next Wednesday.